Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime and this is Wise Girl and it is Monday, May 14th, 2018. And I'm here with a very special guest. They're all special, really, to me and to the world because they're amazing teachers. David Nickturn, he is the author of Awakening from the Daydream. And aside from having amazing teachings in it, I'm absolutely in love with this cover. Uh, it was quite the uh, coup to have whomever did this, which I'm sure he'll tell us um, in a minute. David Nickturn, in full disclosure, is my first uh, formal meditation teacher. I was certified as a meditation teacher through, through David's teachings, and he is a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist lineage of Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche and Sakyam Mipam Rinpoche a tradition that combines a contemporary secular approach to meditation with the ancient practices and philosophies of Tibetan Buddhism. And they have a beautiful center here in New York that I was just at last week, actually, and was one of Trungpa Rinpoche's initial American students. I remember hearing that story about meeting and connecting in Boston, I believe it was, back mm -hmm. in the day. And David has been a featured writer and regular contributor to the Huffington Post. He works with uh, yoga teacher Cindy Lee. He's also a well-known composer, producer, guitarist, four-time Emmy winner, and two-time Grammy nominee. We like to call him Najee. <laughs> <laughs> David Nickturn, thanks so much for being here today on Wise Girl. Welcome. Thank you. Good to see you. Um, some of those uh, bio points are sort of older than others, but uh, let's just leave it where it is. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's in the book. Yeah. Maybe, I, maybe I, everything changes, right? Isn't that yeah, everything changes. Yeah. Everything is impermanent. That's what the wheel of life is saying. That's for sure. So reimagining the Buddha's wheel of life. Um, why don't we start there and then we can work our way back. What? Okay. What, what is the wheel of life? Because you took the time to explain this to everyone very eloquently. And not every uh, Buddhist tradition uses the wheel of life in the way that is like front and center, but mm -hmm. it can be a really helpful template to right. understanding all the teachings. So go for yeah. it. Well, so first of all, I call it a PowerPoint presentation from, from antiquity. <laughs> it, it dates all the way back to the time of the Buddha. The original uh, drawings were... Um, actually commissioned by a king in India on the advice of the Buddha as a gift to another king. Uh, and supposedly when the second king received it and contemplated the, the, the uh, imagery in it and understood it, he became enlightened. So this is considered to have a certain potency, the, the information that's on the wheel. Of course, it's a, a graphic representation, you know, which is called a tanka in the Tibetan tradition. So you have to really decipher it. That's the key point. Um, and it's very old, so some of the imagery is based on kind of traditional Indian cosmology. And the attempt that I made in the book, <clears throat> pursuant to, to me working uh, and learning this from my teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, is how could, we, how could we express it in contemporary terms that would have you know, real meaning for people now? Uh, and in that regard, it could be seen as a sort of psychological portrait of our existence in this world, how we, how we move through the world, how, how our conditioning creates certain realities for us, how our, uh, our habits be, begin to become almost self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, and it's, it's simultaneously a portrait of imprisonment in, in a certain way and of liberation. In other words, using the same template, you can um, move through it. So, so my original idea, which I, I will work on um, probably at some point, is to turn into an interactive video game. Wow. wow. That was the original idea. And you play the Wheel of Life. And the, the, the byline was going to be, 
learn how to win the game you're already playing. (laughs) (laughs) That you're stuck in, right? (laughs) Exactly. You know, I mean, uh, you know, people uh, talk about virtual reality, but in some sense, from a Buddhist point of view, this already is virtual reality in the sense that our world appears to be a certain ways. And a lot of that is filtered through our own projections. Everybody knows this kind of logic. And so the wheel of life is a really precise portrait of how that, how our mind takes shape, how our world takes shape. And uh, it features kind of six realms, which are the main sort of arenas of, of how we live, how we relate to others, how we create environments for ourselves, how we suffer, how we get attached to different things. So it's quite a powerful diagram once you once you uh, understand it. And that's what I really love is that I think sometimes people get lost when they're, you know, trying to figure out where do we go? This is a map to the world and I was only looking for a map to the neighborhood and <laughs> <laughs> you know, like where's my <laughs> right? Yes, you know, that's a really good point because um uh, you know, I'm working on another book now, and I, I, uh, I'm quoting my Uncle Irv, who was a great musician and a great mentor to me. And Uncle Irv used to say, you can only tell people something if they have a place to put it. And, and so you have to really be careful as a teacher um, to understand what the real realm of students' curiosity is, is and what's going to be helpful to that person. So the Buddhist teachings, as you know, are extremely vast and profound and multifaceted depending and they say very much depending on the um sort of aptitude and interest of the of the various students so this is a very complete thing the wheel of life but it also can be partitioned off uh partitioned off and you can grab a little bit of uh of something from it that's helpful and useful well i think that's true of all the buddhist teachings that i've learned is you can kind of nibble you know, you can uh, do the buffet, you can choose the appetizer, but don't mistake the appetizer for the entree and don't, you know, don't mistake the uh, holiday meal for the, uh, the snack, you yeah. know, like yeah. people, you know, they sort of are like mindfulness, the answer to everything. And yeah. it's, well, yeah, that's a foundational piece that's huge and can really show you amazing improvements, like in almost not a lot of time once you hook into it. And then there's this whole other way of being and sort of ethical principles and different kinds of things that actually will help maintain the mindfulness and everything kind of works together in this wheel and this larger cosmology that really ends up helping um, keep you moving toward, I mean, you could say enlightenment or you could just say toward well-being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mindfulness, I'm glad to hear you say that is, is a foundational practice. It is, you know, something you really... If you skip over that into some kind of advanced tantric rituals and you skip over the basic ability to be present with what you're doing and pay attention uh, in, in a mindful way, you do so at your own peril. So um, I'm glad to hear you saying that. I myself have found myself saying that quite a few times. It's like, okay, mindfulness is a foundation. Then, you know, there's a, there's a pretty well mapped out succession of practices throughout Buddhism, you know, that... that um, uh, each one is intended to be built upon the previous uh, level. 100%. Um, do you want to give uh, a quick hit of sort of the three groupings of like, you know, the 
do you want to do that or sure. yeah yeah i mean and i think it's really helpful for people in um who are just beginning to get into this to understand that um uh that what we're calling mindfulness really is has been chipped out of the buddhist teachings that's primarily where it comes from now it's not to say that that buddhists own it because many other traditions get the idea of mindful mindfulness and working with the art of attention for example um but in, in, in general, in Buddhism, we talk about three big uh, vehicles, or yanas, they're called in, in Sanskrit, of uh, cultivation. And I think that's a really good way to think of practices. You're cultivating something. You're strengthening something. You're building on something. So in the narrow vehicle, the Hinayana, we're really working a lot on kind of creating a mindful um, and ethical foundation for, for how to be. And that really comes with the notion of renunciation that, like, you recognize certain habits and patterns are not helpful. And so that's the ultimate idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing because I'm like, you know, uh, you think. Um, yeah, you had a, a, a telling look on your face. As oh, I I'm bursting at the seams to tell you what I showed, told Sharon last week, but I'll, I'll wait. Go ahead. Okay, so, um, you know, the, the ability to... Um, uh, distinguish, discriminate between uh, activities and, you know, and modalities that are going to be helpful for you and helpful for others and ones that will be injurious to you and injurious to others. That's the kind of, that's called prajna, discriminating awareness wisdom. And that's really, you're sharpening that. You're beginning to see without any real, you know, you don't really have to make any big commitment to any kind of um, church and state, you know, it's really just sharpening your, your eyes in terms of seeing what's going on. And to do that, you, you, the, the basic practice is to sit and be with yourself finally after, you know, after trying everything else and be quiet, you know. And, uh, <laughs> it really is the last resort. It's like I checked into every other hotel. <laughs> that's right. It is, it is, I believe it is a kind of close to the final stop because as long as you think there's some out, you'll, you'll go for it. But so, so it's funny because, uh, you know, my teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, used to say, when we talk about hopelessness, we're not talking about a strategy. It's actually hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, I throw out my hands, you know, in 12 yeah. steps. It's, it's, I think it's called like surrender. You're just like, I give up. I need help. It, it, it's, 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 surrender is a, good, is a good idea. And renunciation is the other part of letting, letting it go. So in the Hinayana uh, uh, path, there's a lot of emphasis on what we call individual practice or individual liberation. Really, somebody traditionally would practice either in a cave or a forest hut or by, by themselves and really um, do a, a lot of meditation practice and kind of uh, see how their mind is working, really, and, and, and try to free it up from certain you know, negative patterns. It's pretty, pretty um, there's nothing really uh, kind of quote-unquote religious or maybe even spiritual about it. It's sort of psychology. It's, it's science. Yeah, it's literally the ability to sit with yourself. I forget who it is that um, some famous person who was either a philosopher or a psychiatrist or somebody said, you know, the problem with man is they can't sit in a room alone with themselves for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever. I don't know who it was, somebody famous. But that idea of being able to cultivate that ability to just tolerate your own presence and your full experience and what I call the garbage dump of the mind, right? Yeah. I, I, or, or what can be, 
you know, that then when you clear out all the stuff that's been dumped in there, you're like, wow, this is like soil I can cultivate and grow a beautiful garden. Right. And that actually takes us to the next yana, what you, you just gave a sort of short summary in a way of the Hinayana or narrow path. The Mahayana is the great vehicle. And yeah, what do you want to cultivate in that garden? And in general, we, you know, we're pulling up the weeds of selfish, self-cherishing and kind of narcissism, basically, and paranoia and uh, manipulation. And we're planting seeds of compassion and affection and sympathy and empathy for others. And uh, it's, it's kind of quite, um, quite a, well, you hear what happens when you do that and bells go off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's, it's it's quite um, magnanimous and kind of broader stroke in terms of what life can and should be about. And it really simply is uh, exchanging oneself for others. It's the idea. You, you feel somewhat more grounded yourself and you feel like um, it won't drain you necessarily to be kind and considerate to other people. It might even enhance your own existence. And that's the, the, the bigger vehicle, which is really... Uh, probably the broadest spread aspect of Buddhism that's in Zen that's in, you know, uh, many, many different uh, Buddhist schools uh, have this Mahayana quality in them. And then there was, these are called turnings of the wheel that the Buddha taught all three of these uh, modalities. And the after hours club is called the Vajrayana. And, uh, you know, I love how you say that, because that's kind of how I feel about it too. I'm like, Oh, let's party. Yeah, well, so, no, I, well, let's no. slow it down. <laughs> <laughs> no, meaning let's enjoy life. Like you're integrating these other parts of presence and concentration. They're more integrated so that you're fully present for the range of experience that can also include, I think in some ways, when you're doing a lot of the weeding, you know, this, this range of... Um, I don't know, like joy, if you will. I don't know. Okay. It not includes... Together. Yeah. Not let's say that it includes... That you begin to see uh, that the seed of your whole state of being is, is actually a joyful energy. Yeah. Uh, as, as Bob Thurman was saying the other night, blissful. But, but, it, but the trick in with the Buddhist thing is that if we become, and this is a big topic in the book, if we look at bliss as something that we can acquire, attain, and sustain, then this becomes another, yet a finer, finer trap. It's called the golden, the golden trap, and it's called the God realms so or the Devaloka. It's called the golden handcuffs here in the states. Golden handcuffs, and so instead of seeing bliss as uh, you know something you can attach to, you see it as something more intrinsic, and not really based on any kind of constructed reality at all. So therefore, it's not a product of your effort or your kind of attempt to grasp onto it at all. It's just sort of more natural expression. So the third turning of the wheel the Buddha did is called the Vajrayana, which really is about indestructible aspects of our... Vajra is like a meteoric iron, uh, like cosmic metal, or di diamond is sometimes the analogy. It's not really diamond-like, it's sort of otherworldly, but it's... Um, um, indestructible in the way a diamond is. In other words, when you look at somebody, you talk about their basic goodness or their fundamental quality of, uh, you know, kind of brilliance of some kind, this is considered not to be a constructed part of their personality or an acquired part, but an actual natural, uh, the same way that a diamond is a natural part. And in a similar way, the diamond can, can you, when you find it, it can be quite in the rough. And, uh, you know, so the idea of polishing it is, um, is, is maybe more appropriate than creating it. 
So yeah. it's part of the essential nature of yeah. all beings that, yeah. And then you are working to uncover it or whatever version that you want to use, take it to the jeweler so they can cut it yeah. down and use a teacher in that way. But that you really are the ultimate uh, faceter of that. Right. So, th so these teachings are interesting in that obviously what you just said is not a big secret, is it? I mean, that's a beautiful glowing way of describing reality, but the teachings themselves, the methods are not offered in the public domain. So, and, and the reason is because they can be easily misappropriated uh, towards kind of, you can see how easy that could turn into a kind of giant ego trip. You know what I mean? I'm perfect the way I am. Everything I do is, is magic. And instead of polishing a diamond at that point, you're polishing a turd. But I do think that there's the misunderstanding that can happen exactly what you said. But in my personal experience, once I hit onto the nature of what your teacher, um, Chicken Trump calls the basic goodness, other folks call Buddha nature or true nature or whatever you want to call it, that when I was made aware of that reality, I'll call it that um, truth, I'll call right. it that, that truth, uh, that basic sort of universal truth. It then gave me sort of uh, an ability to touch into a ground of being that I wasn't always falling back into this collapse of like, I'm not good enough, I'm terrible, right. I'm awful, I have to be ashamed, I'm a bad person, I'm whatever. So that then the energy around right. my activity was about stripping away the conditioning and focused on polishing the diamond and not on trying to make the diamond into titanium or right. something. Right. You know, it wasn't like some misconstrued notion of what are we doing here? We're taking what's good, right. what is sort of making it cloudy. And we're just sort of saying chip, 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 chip away. And then that's all those practices and all the time and investment that we do toward seeing things differently for me in my experience, mm -hmm. and then applying whatever practices you do to help uh, right. uncover what's there. In particular though, the method, the skillful means of that particular set of practices is transmitted from a teacher to a student. Right. One to one. Right. Uh, so even though it's said to be secret in that way, or you know, kind of um, by initiation, it's sometimes called an open secret or, you know, something hidden in plain sight, which is really what you're talking about. But the method of like working with energy in that way from a fruition point of view is um, you're saying, hey, it's, a, it's already manifest. It's already here. It's here right now. Uh, there also is a sort of, you know, if, if we don't go through the preparatory practices of the Hinayana and the Mahayana, there's a chance of misappropriating that, that teaching to mean, well, I can just do whatever I want and it's cool. Well, materialism and nihilism, I don't think is anything that the Buddha ever had in mind, although those are like the near enemies, right? When we talk near about conditional yeah. love versus attachment, like, do I really want you to love me because I want something from you or do I really just love you for who you are? Mm -hmm. And this idea of also having this yeah. idea of like, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm perfect. That's not what I don't think anybody right. ever said in Buddhist tradition, but it is misinterpreted. Right. So it's, in other words, just there's a certain care given when those teachings are presented. Uh, there's a certain kind of authorization seal and things like that. where, And that's where the notion of lineage comes in very strongly and appropriate student teacher relationships and all these kind of things like that are, are very, very important. Yes. 
And we all know that goes out the window sometimes. And unfortunately, there's a lot of folks who have received amazing transmissions and teachings and then other teachers and students that have, you know, crossed a boundary there that is inappropriate in terms of, well, I'm just talking about like, we've heard a lot of um, folks in uh, even recent times and recent circles where there have been sexual misconduct or with teachers or, you know, those kinds of things, which are not scaring everyone. I'm saying it's like the rest of the world. There's, there's issues sometimes even within these deepest teachings. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and also um, these are cultural issues, you know, and they're timely issues. And there has never been a presentation of Buddhism in 2018 before this. This is a very unique environment. It's quite a cultural mashup, you know, to mash up his music, right? Oh, please. You know, you just play two records right on top of each other. So to, to conjoin Tibetan Buddhism with Western democratic society is a complete mashup, actually. Yeah. And, and a work in progress yeah. in terms of yeah. how that's going to manifest. What do you think needs to happen there um, to maybe uncouple some of those threads? Or to see more clearly what they're able to teach one another and what isn't so effective? Well, in a nutshell... That was going to be the title of my autobiography, My Life in a Nutshell. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. Is it an autobiography or is it a memoir? Well, you know, what's the difference? Is there a difference? Oh, well, of course. Okay. One, one is how you feel about what's going on and how oh. you remember things to be. And the other yeah. one is sort of the explicit factual narrative. And so oh, okay. it has to do with implicit memory and the other one has to do with explicit memory. And so, again, it's sort of how we relate to the things in right. our life that happened as okay. opposed to exactly what happened. It would be a memoir in that case. Good. In a nutshell, David yeah. Nickern, On Yourselves <laughs> in 2022. Yeah. Thanks. Well, because I have another book I'm doing now that's in between, which is called Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. And I, I just I finished it. the draft of that, and that'll be, that'll be out in the fall of 2019 on Wisdom Publications. So um, that's a whole other topic. Let's, 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 um, let's uh, finish at least the thread of um, how these cultures will overlap. And I think the key element is going to be the relationship to leadership and hierarchy, um, which is, um, the, you know, for example, to, traditional Asian culture is not – it is hierarchical. That's what these teachings come from. The relationship between the teacher and student is not a democratic relationship. In 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 the in the higher yanas, in the Vajrayana. In the in the Hinayana, it's it is a little more democratic. It's just like you say stuff, the person does it, you know, it's not like um, but you know, if you're studying with a martial arts master, for example, this is not a democracy. <laughs> and the whole idea of of um the fact that even if you really carefully look, we don't actually even live in a democracy. We live in an autocracy already anyhow, but it's a, it's a corrupt one. It's, there's no sort of ethical stepladder that you climb to get to the top of the heap. You just cheat and lie and screw your way to it. You know, So um, I think we're comparing apples and oranges in a way, but I think how does this all come together is going to be very, very interesting to see. Very interesting to see. Indeed. And, you know, I remember when I was interviewing Gloria Steinem, she said, we're linked, we're not ranked, you know, and that was sort of that fundamental idea of, like you say, the Mahayana, the community, the sense of interdependence, as they would say, in yeah. um, this co-beingness, right? Well, see, now I'm, I'm going to uh, now out loud wish that Gloria was here now to participate in this conversation, because that's to me, is the beginning of the conversation 
because how would she address the notion like, is there any such thing as hierarchy within any kind of organizational structure? Is it just co-equals? Uh, that, that yes. No, she would. And I think I'm speaking for her, which is completely not okay, but I'm just right. pretending, right? right? Well, how would you say it then? Well, so my understanding is it goes back to intention. So is the intention of the individual to be subjugative, right? right. Am I trying to power over or uh -huh. am I trying to empower with? And so leadership is not exclusive to uh, that, right? You can still be a leader and be working with the collective, right? Right. For sure. And so one has to know what the intention is. So is it ego-driven, small sense of self, or is it based on a greater notion of what we're really trying to do here and why? So if somebody had a greater notion and a greater vision, according to that view, they're going to kind of rise to the top of the decision tree. Um, maybe or maybe not. I mean, Bob just said back in, uh, I'm talking about Bob Thurman, David and I were with Mark Epstein and Sharon Salzberg and Bob Thurman this weekend. And Bob just said uh, that, you know, in Tibetan culture, it is very much um, oriented in a way that he was questioning whether or not it was going to be consumed ultimately by, uh, you know, Chinese culture. And he said, ultimately, I don't think it will be. I think it will, you know, survive. And, 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 but his point was that because of the orientation being more um, collective, if you will, as sure. opposed to, you know, whatever, um, it makes that culture in some ways more vulnerable mm -hmm. to that kind of way of thinking. But yeah. not necessarily, because his point was, was that, no, actually, I think that it will survive. I think it will go on. And the, 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 the thing that will survive is exactly what? In that in that discussion, the well, Buddhism really. I mean, but 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 Vajrayana Buddhism. Well, that's Bob's orientation. Is that what he thinks will survive? He didn't say that. Now I'm really putting a lot of people's words into my mouth. <laughs> I'm afraid that literally, like I'm speaking out of different heads at this point. Okay. Um, my understanding of what he was trying to say is the orientation around uh, a deeper understanding of interdependence, of connectivity, of not having to be, as therapist Terry Real says, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Do you want to be right or do you want to be married? Do you want to be part of an individual only or do you want to be part and seen as an integrated tapestry, the web? Well, I would go as far as to say, if you want to be right, don't get married. Yeah. I know, <laughs> I know, but oh my God, we could go into that, but uh, yeah. But there are choice points that we make and there are things to learn in terms of um, interrelationality. And I think that this is a relational path. Yeah, I mean, there's two different threads here that are really imp both important. One is societal and one is sort of cultural or uh, you know, metaphysical. And the thing with, um, I think the thing that we're all going to look at and co-create in a sense going forward, we'll see how this comes out, is, is the spiritual domain and the temporal domain, in what way are they going to, see, this is really a big topic for, for Shambhalians because Shambhala says you can cohabitate the spiritual and temporal domains. That's really the essence of those teachings. The absolute and the relative. Yeah, you, well, that's, that's included within 
Tantra altogether. And, uh, you know, the absolute and relative are, are considered inseparable. And, uh, you know, the, the notion of like the absolute truth and the relative truth are considered interdependent and inseparable. So the idea of trumping or transcending the meat puppet idea of like the sort of lower idea about what, what our temporal existence is and jumping ab above that into the spiritual enlightenment is not the idea of either tantric Buddhism or Shambhala. It's, it's the idea that you commingle those realities and in fact they become inseparable um, and cohesive. So the idea of becoming a great citizen, a great artist, a great business person is absolutely co uh, coherent with being a great spiritual practitioner. Now that, in historically, that is a very rare view. Very rare. Because we have separation of church and state, or we have autocracy, or we have theocracy. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of how you would put that on earth was exactly the topic that Trungpa Rinpoche was trying to play with before he died and passed along to us uh, to, to think about how would we structure our society to, to represent a, a very um, integrated approach towards you know, your temporal existence and your sense of spirituality. And what would it look like? What would leadership look like? What would government look like? What would the military look like? What would the post office look like? What would art look like? And, and this is so profound in my opinion, because for many centuries, the spiritual people, you look around the world now, they've gone to the mountains, they've got, they've, they've basically, they look at the world, including in Tibetan Buddhism as a kind of, um, you know, there's a great quote from Tulku Ujin. It's like, he said, the Buddha took, they call it the red dust world, you know, our everyday reality. And he said, you spit it out. He said, and once you spit it out, you wouldn't pick it up out of the sand and put it back in your mouth. It's like, and if the Buddha didn't teach renunciation, people wouldn't have been monastics and he wouldn't have taught that way. But that is not the iteration that I particularly am following and many people these days are following, which is this red dust world is the sacred world. Yeah, that's always been what I've understood as well, is that, you know, there is in fact this, um, like I said, it's the tapestry, it's the wovenness of all of it. Uh, the whole catastrophe, the Zorba, the Greek, you know, thing, right? You know, the whole, the whole bag of, you know what? Are you Greek? No, I'm Italian, Haitian, and Dominican. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. Somebody should put an ice cube in your drink, in your drink huh? I, well, listen, I, I mean, if you just look at the history of those two countries, right? Yeah. yeah. Dominican Republic and all of that racial stuff and all of the stuff that's in today when it comes to skin color and ethnicity and background. And then you take the Italian stuff in terms of the immigrant and the hard work. And then a lot of folks who are Italian really are like Columbus and Columbus was amazing. He discovered America. Uh, you know, and you look at indigenous people and stuff. Mm -hmm. So even in me, there is all of that. Yeah. Right. And I'm just one little person. Yes. That's beautiful. That's terrific. Right? Yeah. And so then how am I showing up in the world and educating myself about yeah. blind spots and portals and connections and how can I be the integration that is actually already in some ways in me, but also has to be made aware of. Sure. A certain amount of study or history or whatever. Well, and there's a lot of cultures that are merging. And if you go back to your, um, not just the DNA, but what was happening to the DNA in terms of temporally, 
you know, you've got all kinds of governmental situations. You know, you look at Italy, there was a monarchy at one point. It was a fascist country at another point. They obviously have hierarchy, leadership, tremendous artists and so forth. You know, so we're all, um, uh, you know, have a tremendous uh, background that we're drawing from. I was just reading in Shambhala's Sacred Path of the Warrior because I'm teaching at Shambhala Center this weekend. And, you know, he's saying our ancestral lineages are really important. Yeah. You know, that, that in cultures where they acknowledge their ancestral lineages, this is a good thing. It's a healthy and thing. And in cultures where they don't, and I'll shift maybe the conversation now a little bit more into what's topical and happening in terms of racism in this country mm. in particular, mm. especially among people of color, um, you know, what we see and all of that. But that there's really a, um, an idea that when we understand where we've come from, we can better understand literally like who we are. And, and so some of the undoing racism work that I've done has invited people to explore their own personal lineages mm. in a way that they maybe haven't. Cause a lot of uh, folks that have been in the white away classes and things like that, that I've taken have been more like, I don't really know where I'm come from. I'm Scottish, but I don't really know my history or I don't really know the history of the commons and what happened to the Europeans that were, you know, wealthy landowners wanted the commons, they pushed us out, we came to this country, we were given certain things, and then we were divided from people of color when we did try to come together because they recognized that we could be more powerful and not powerful like lording over, but yes. powerful in the collective. And so tracing that back can help some folks give them a yes. better sense of, well, I do come from somewhere, I don't just have this white American identity Right. It's not all of who I am. It's like white bread in a way. You know, I grew up in the 50s and I remember white bread being, there was a, a bread called Wonder Bread. You're, you, you probably are too young to remember this, but. I do remember it. Really? Okay. Well, Wonder Bread. Yellow and blue polka dotted. Yes. And it, it, the logo was Wonder Bread helps build strong bodies 12 ways. 12 ways. And the truth was Wonder Bread helps build strong bodies zero ways because they've taken out all the fiber. They've taken out all the nutritional impact, you know? So this is interesting when you contemplate, I mean, it's very beautiful what you're saying, Francesca. It's very um, uh, potent in a way to just really feel who you are all the way down to the roots of it and let your uh, practice include that because the other alternative is people just will assimilate or imitate Asian tradition or, or, or something that appeals to them and they become disingenuous in a very obvious way. They, they become Indian-like or Tibetan-like um, and, 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 and also they've never really gone to the root of their own existence as the, as the ground. And they become fascinated maybe with some Indian or Tibetan guru who has kind of great style and presence, you know. But just so you, you know, my role as a teacher I don't see it as me becoming charismatic and kind of colorful uh, individual and therefore magnetizing people and then now they're fascinated with me I really have a hard uh, line about this which is it's about the students that's that's as a teacher I really I say to people if you want to assess a teacher look at their students if the students are good it's a good teacher yeah, that's beautiful because it is a personal path. 
I mean, the whole point of this is, and I was just at your center the other day, Shambhala Center in New York City, listening to Angel Kyoto, Reverend Angel Kyoto. Ah, I heard that was amazing. It was amazing. And it'll be up on your podcast. I'll advertise for you guys the, uh, you know, what is it? Meditation in the city or calm in the city or something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, On the Shambhala website, you can check it out. They have a podcast and her talk will be up there. And and she was basically talking about the collective liberation, that nobody's free Mm -hmm. unless we're free. Like I can't, I'm bound unless we're all free. Right. Well, that's pure Mahayana. That, That is Mahayana. And that, and that what I guess I'm getting at is, is that what I don't think a lot of people know, and I've only known this because through another one of my teachers, Jack Cornfield, and the training that I'm in with him and the invitation that he really put on the table for me in particular, and I think for everyone, is to understand what it means to do undoing racism work or understanding mm-hmm. what unconscious bias means in terms of a present day context when it comes to where do we, like, again, don't know, like, don't know mind, like, I don't know, stay curious. How did I get to believe these things that I do? Mm -hmm. What do I believe? What's my automatic reaction? How do I change the reaction into a response? Where do I create the space? But all of that can't just happen on the cushion. There has to be a certain part that we go back and we do a little bit of education about how did we get here? Who are we as an individual? Have you had my son Ethan on your podcast yet? No, but he can be next. Yeah, because, you know, really... You know, I try to keep up with what's going on um, as the wheel turns. And, you know, he seems to be a voice of uh, a lot of the a lot of issues that you're raising, not just him, but the, the, the generation that is coming there um, yeah. is, is more apparent to them that the integration of, of, of this kind of system into a kind of politically acute and socially aware uh, uh, type of society and practice is 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 critical. It's not a it's not an escape pod for them. You know? It's not an escape pod for anyone. And I think what I would say, just to again sort of try to consolidate that thread a little bit, is is that when I was doing these implicit bias classes or whatever, one of the invitations was to not only study your own personal history or lineage or how did we get here, but also what did it mean to be American? And that included Mm. stripping away Mm. the Slovakian dress. In my Italian family, that meant you couldn't learn Italian or speak Italian. And so in order to assimilate, then you had to adopt what was the quote unquote wonder bread philosophy. Uh And in order to be American, that's what it meant. And so now we're pivoting and saying, wait, that's not sustainable. That didn't really work. It had a certain amount of um, benefits for a few for a time at the cost of many others for a long time. And also what Angel Kyoto Williams was saying, and at a cost to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's beautiful to really just say, listen, nobody's to blame here at this point, but let's do the work of figuring out what it is and then working with our minds and incorporating the educational piece so that we can then see it clearly enough to be able to know what to do wisely instead out of reactivity, but out of a responsiveness. Now, when you go back to the Wheel of Life and the six realms, what's interested in the archetypes, the six archetypes uh, presented in the, in the wheel of life as the six realms are actually not cultural. They're pan-cultural or transcultural, And they, you could see them as closer to the root of, 
of uh, creating the, the worlds in which we're working through a lot of the issues you're talking about because they're so fundamental in terms of our ability to um, uh, experience aversion in its raw form, not just ethnic, not just um, uh, sexual, not just cultural. What is aversion itself? Why do you go, I don't want that? Also, the grasping, uh, you know, and also the ignorance. So these three are at the very core of the wheel in their most raw, basic state. They haven't even evolved into the narrative of the kind of situation that we're talking about, societal situation. It's just a raw being having these kind of reactivity at the core of it. That's what generates the realms. So, so therefore, you know, if you're looking for pleasure, you end, you end up sort of like up in the sort of lofty realms or, or craving, the hungry ghost realms. And these realms, I would say, are transcultural, which is an interesting way of looking at it and joining that with the conversation that we just had. Um, what is the basic psychology of a human being? That's what we're really talking about. And also, I think when you look at Dan Siegel's work and a lot of these neuroscientists or whatever, they'll talk about the fact that there's a reason why evolutionarily we've always been sort of survivor-based, which ends up translating into fear-based, which ends up into, you know, translating into not well-being-based. And so mm -hmm. that when we're using positive neuroplasticity practices or like the meta-loving-kindness retreat or the four Brahma-Vaharas, you know, mm -hmm. compassion and empathetic joy and, you know, these other more quote-unquote positive qualities that we can plant the seeds of in addition to, you know, weeding the garden of the, you know, sort of nefarious, you know, uh, you know, growth that's in there or whatever, that we can get to a point where we are able to have a more organic, as Dan Goldman would say, uh, trait-like quality of well-being. Yeah, yeah. It's situational, right? That we're growing mm. that, but we're recognizing we're wired for survival evolutionarily. Mm. We're not wired necessarily for well-being, but because we're homo sapiens sapiens, the awareness of the awareness, we can then come in and say, okay, now I get to intentionally chart a different course mindfully, repetitively, cultivatingly to continue to move in this other direction. Well, it's an interesting um, um, inquiry uh, to go deep into the wiring and see how, what are we really wired for? And, and are we hardwired for anything would be one question, or is it just like, you know, whatever, um, it's just open. Or are we wired for um, survival, as you're saying, you know, which, you know, the lower brain is clearly wired for survival. The higher brain is obviously wired for something else, for, you know, empathy and for um, communication. So, you know, who we are as a, as a being um, is there's so many portals, there's so many access roads for how you would even consider talking about it. But in the, in the wheel of life and in Buddhism in general, we do tend to start with like addressing immediately, directly what our experience is. And, 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 and also the fact that our experience, when we address it immediately, like if you do your sitting meditation, you see, well, my experience is, has some troubled aspect to it. It has anxiety in, in the experience. It has uh, stress in it. It has these qualities. If I'm not in a state of denial or spiritual wishful thinking, I can easily acknowledge that I'm like, you know, spend a good portion of my day worrying about stuff that hasn't even happened yet. 
and, and, and beating myself over stuff that already is gone, that already happened. So, you know, how to, where to start is an interesting point with one's own personal journey. And definitely I'm from the school, start with the discomfort. Mm-hmm. That's where to start. Don't start with your ideals about bliss and emptiness and all those things. Start right at the moment of that you, that you put your butt on the cushion. Right now, are you experiencing any kind of discomfort? And, and, and in fact, you said a lot of people can't even sit. And that's the reason. There is no other reason. They're just not comfortable enough with themselves to be but, with themselves. But you said something different just now, which I think is critical to sort of, I don't want to say convert, because that's a terrible word to use, but I just said it, um, is into thinking that it's possible. Because you said your experience of anxiety. You didn't say you anxiety. And so a lot of folks who think no. that they are only sure. fear and anxiety really have a hard time. I know I did sitting on a cushion, watching the mind, doing whatever, uh, because I thought I was only that all the time, ever, always, only, as opposed to recognizing this is an experience in my own experience by watching it that is ephemeral. And it may come up more often than not, but in my own experience, it's not, there's something else going on with me that can sort of look at that experience and know that it's experience and know that it's also maybe unpleasant experience in my case, but also that it doesn't mean that I'm unpleasant. Well, you, and you had, that was a shift of perspective that basically that perspective shift pulled you out or threw you out of the hell realm in terms of the wheel of life. The hell realm is a realm in which you are the misery. You are the anxiety. You're inseparable from it. Therefore, it seems interminable, permanent, uh, without causes and conditions. And the message of the wheel of life and why it's held in the arms of the, the deity that is a wrathful deity representing impermanence is saying all the experiences within these six realms are impermanent, even though they may not feel that way at the time. If you're a hungry ghost, if you're an addict, it doesn't feel temporary. And you feel like, if I don't get that cookie right now, I'm going to die. <laughs> right you feel right. you're gonna die and then that's why again turning toward the experience and getting curious in terms of an insight practice about well what does it really need what is it trying to tell me what not getting lost in the story of it but just getting curious about hmm okay so that's there so yeah let's figure out maybe why what that has to teach me as opposed to what? Well, as, as you said, with the meta-intelligence that you're cultivating, the, the abstract watcher or the witness is a kind of meta-intelligence. It's not invested in the experience. It's looking at the experience. That is the, you know, fork in the road where you go, I'm not completely captivated by this experience. Somehow awareness is sort of taking a non-judgmental view of the experience. And that is a huge, huge uh, point of departure it's not the end of the path, it's, it's sort of, but it is a big transitional moment where you go, the first time you ever see your anger as an experience rather than as identifying completely with it. And it's so liberating in my experience because for me, I could let myself recognize that there was anger and that maybe there was an injustice to actually feel as though there was a certain reason why this energy of anger arose. And then there's the space to be able to say, hmm, let me take a deep breath. Let me see what I really, 
think is helpful to do about this for me and for others, and then maybe take the time to do it in a way that's skillful or helpful as opposed to reactionary. So, I mean, I really have to say that all of that wouldn't have happened, back to our earlier point, we only have about 10 minutes left, about this business of um, when all else fails, we end up here. Um, and I was going to tell you at the very beginning when you said I had this really like funny look on my face at the very beginning when I was just like, mm-hmm, I get it, is because I wouldn't have come to this if I didn't get arrested. I had gotten pulled over. I didn't take a breathalyzer and I ended up getting in a jail cell overnight with a bunch of other women in the middle of downtown New York. And the next day I woke up and I was like, okay, I need to do stuff that's different. I mean, I'm fine. I don't have a record. I'm grateful. All of the maybe other karmic seeds that I may have planted, if you will, came together to help me navigate yeah. through this yeah. process, right? But mm -hmm. at that moment, in much the same way that your buddy, one of my teachers also, Krishnadas, talks about when Mr. Swari came in and was just like, you will not be a drug addict anymore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I woke up that day and I was like, well, I'm never drinking again, because this mm -hmm. makes no sense. I'm never eating meat again. I'm not going to spend my time or waste my time with people especially with men in my case, that weren't really cultivating a sense of well-being for me or with me. And I'm going to try to turn my attention towards something that makes more sense, that I don't really know what it is, but it's going to be an orientation that is hopefully more wholesome for all beings considered. And that only happened once this ish hit the fan. You know what I'm saying? I had gone through many times of like bumping my head up against the wall and then all this other stuff opened up. So when they say, you know, like Leonard Cohen, you're the musician, you're the Grammy winner. That's the crack is where the light gets in. That's where the light got in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was a real huge somatic thing. Sure. Yeah. And then I can go back to this cultivation part and stay on the path and keep on doing whatever it is that I'm trying to explore, you know? But that was a that was like real life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're like, why did you just say that? <laughs> I am. No, I don't know. Maybe it was a little bit much. Um, okay, let's move on to the music, creativity. Talking about Grammy winning stuff. Talking about. Um, you know, the idea that your next book is about creativity, the creative process, maybe a portal to mindfulness, maybe a way in which um, that's also a practice for you. Talk about that. I mean, I've enjoyed your guitar playing many times, and it obviously creates a lot of joy in the world for a lot of people. Um, and it also required a lot of cultivation from you to be able to sort of have the music, if you will, move through you as it yeah. often does yeah on a good day it's all moving through you um <laughs> <laughs> oh my god you sound like you're as a senior citizen <laughs> I, I was just about to say you sound like you're describing like x-lax or something yeah, well let's leave that to to the implied dimension but um you know the creativity the, the way that I'm talking about it is it's a kind of um, natural juiciness that people have. And it, it, of course, it's, the expression is going to be different. But, uh, you know, my basic point of view is that it's creative to be alive. 
like even, you know, I look at people's hairstyles and their glasses and how they comport themselves and how they decorate their houses and what decisions they make about, you know, walking down the street. And to me, it's an ongoing concert, if you will. The whole thing, reality is like a concert, you know, and, and people are, uh, it's extremely theatrical and, you know, people are really expressing themselves. So when somebody says, I'm not creative, I go, you're, you know, you, you, we're using different language here for two different things. So the essential thing is creative. Now, when you choose a particular um, channel for your creativity, like you're a journalist, I'm a guitar player, uh, this, this is, I call this your offering in the, in the book. And the idea is that you're making an offering. Um, and then I go further and say, is your offering also your livelihood or do you want it to be just kind of part of creative output for your friends and family or whoever? The make a buck part. Of the uh -huh. That's right. A hobby uh, as opposed to a livelihood. If it's going to be a livelihood, I've got a lot to say about it. And I actually found myself over the years mentoring people, um, mostly younger, you know, and saying, let me save you 10 or 20 years here. We'll just work on the mistakes I made. <laughs> I'll pass them along to you so you don't have to do it. I mean, uh, now, of course, people have to make their own mistakes, having said that. But if it's going to be your livelihood, there's a lot of things to think about. And I just end up working with a lot of people and being with a lot of people who are trying to bring spirituality, their creative juice, and their livelihood together. Like, you're a perfect candidate in a way, you know. But, but everybody that I know kind of is. And you're trying to create an entrepreneurial channel for yourself, which is a very creative thing to do. And then there are certain business principles that are kind of like, like, like in music, you don't play, uh, if you're in the key of D major, you don't play an F natural. That's called a minor third. You've got to understand that principle. Like an idiot, a new person who can't really play the guitar is going to play that and think they're in, but anybody who knows anything about music is going, no, that's the wrong note. So uh, that there are principles underlying all of these things. The fundamental urge is just to express and to, to communicate. That's a very, I think we all have that in us. We all want to be heard. We want to be seen. We want to feel, you know, I just think that's human. Um, and, and there's no spiritual trip that I'm aware of that goes, well, you can't be human. That's, you know, you have to transcend that. Um, so the idea of expressing yourself uh, when I'm playing guitar, I feel, you know, because I practice uh, and, and I, trained in it I can express myself fairly freely with it and then it's a question of who am I playing with at that point and who am I playing for and then if I add the livelihood piece it's a whole other conversation we'll leave it out for this time but but yeah just um, uh, you know I think two things that come up really are discipline and freedom and the relationship between those two things and I think that's what people got to contemplate. If you, if you feel like you experience a lot of freedom with your creativity, but you're undisciplined, that's not going to be complete. And if you're just disciplined, but you're not enjoying yourself, uh, you know, that's so, so bringing those two things of discipline and freedom together is kind of a through line. And I think that's beautiful because it's sort of life, right? I mean, yeah. what they say is what you turn your attention to is what grows. So that's mm. the discipline part. And yeah. then sort of, you know, also, if you're there and you're missing the miracle because you're only paying attention to whatever is the thing, like your cell phone, then you're going to missing the miracle. Who said that? That's a cute phrase. That's me. Oh, that's a good title. Yeah? Don't miss the miracle? 
Are you missing the miracle? Are you missing the miracle? Well, I, you know, you can be my agent on that then. Uh, that'll be my next book. I'm copywriting it in my- I'll just be your nudge. I'll tell you to write that book. Are you missing the miracle? That's a really good title. It's very compelling. Well, and I was missing the miracle until mm. that incident a few years ago. You know, now, we're, now we're in the intro. <laughs> I really was, but I was so stuck under the clouds of gray that, and you know, trauma happened and stuff happened and there was real stuff that was not mm. kosher. But that idea that you're talking about is um, the discipline and the creativity. The, again, yeah. the discerning part to you can know when you can be joyful like yeah. that's also possible yeah discipline and freedom discipline and freedom but yeah. what is freedom really the internal freedom right like well, this is why you know i i think for whatever reason we're not trained in opposites uh, or, or which is really a Taoist or a tantric view is that we don't say it's all one in in, in buddhist tantra we say it's not one and not two that's a, that's a much different statement in a way, because you're saying, by saying that you're saying it is all one and it's also diverse, it's both. And if you fasten too hard to the, uh, it's all one, then that's called theism, which is a considered a, a kind of a, a, mis, a misapprehension of reality. And if you work too hard on uh, denying that interconnectedness, that's called nihilism. And that's also, that's the other uh, belief system that will keep you, you know, apart from, Proceed accurate perception. So um, this is yin and yang. You know this whole idea in, in um, Asian thought and, and Taoist thought in particular that these two opposites intermingle. You know, masculine and feminine. They're not separate. They're they're intermingling and they're transforming. You know, there's a beautiful when you see the yin yang symbol. It's like, you know, it's really two fish swimming in opposite directions. It has that connotation. And a dot, in, one is black and one is white. And there's a dot of white in the black one and a dot of black in the white one. But the real image, if you want to imagine that symbol accurately, is that it's in four dimensions. You have to see it in four dimensions, which is that it is three dimensions. You have to see it as a ball, a sphere, not a, not a flat circle. So it's multi-dimensional that way. And it's moving in time. If you could see it moving in time, the yin is transforming into yang and the yang is transforming into yin. So by the time that gets into the next moment, they're completely reversed. Right, so, yeah. Yeah, so, so understanding how to hold opposites in a dynamic union rather than a static union, which is sometimes the all one philosophy can put you into a static union. You go like, I'm, you know, I've merged. You, you, you never have merged, you are merging. It's a dynamic process. And that's what coupling is. That's what playing with people is. You never get to the, okay, it's, 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 the, it's a dynamic uh, uh, bringing together of two things. So that's, that's the way I see things. Anyhow, that's my view. No, it's beautiful. And I mean, that's 100% a, a gorgeous way to kind of close out the, the sphere, if you will, of the uh, conversation that we've been having. Just because in my experience, I think, you know, Joseph Goldstein, when I was talking to him the other day, was like, yeah, it's not that you're the knower, that witness consciousness that we were mm -hmm. talking about earlier. It's mm -hmm. that there is the knowing. Mm. Yeah. I-N-G. And mm. that, you know, it's sort of this idea. I always call it, it's all the verb, never the noun. Or not never, because that sounds very whatever. But yeah. it's that it's the verbing. Of I hope you're writing some of the stuff down for your book. <laughs> These are chapter titles. Ing. 
ing could be a chapter title well okay are you missing the miracle you know yeah well yeah the relationship noun and verb come on you have to write it (laughs) what are you waiting for because I'm too busy talking to you because I like chatting too much. Well, just chat to yourself and write it down. That's all. That's what writing is. Uh, you're right about that, actually. And I think I've been a little bit, um, talk about cultivation. I wanted yeah. to be able to get to a place where I felt like I owned it enough. Not own sure. it like a, like a way of... I get it. I get it. I get it. But an integrated way of yeah. like, yeah, I get this. And we just keep on going back on the treadmill because we don't want to get fat. But, you know, like... But here's the thing. It's a cooking show that you're doing, but you're also the muffin. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right? You're the, you're the eggplant parmesan yourself. So in other words, your journey, you know, I think it's very helpful to remember that many of the great teachers that we studied with were not born that way. They went on a journey, and particularly Buddha is a journey-ing kind of thing. And so as you share your journey with a very open heart the way you do, um, then many, many people can resonate with it because they're on a similar journey. If you make it, if you, it's a cooking show, you only show the final product, you know, then that, that's not as interesting. <laughs> well, you missed it on Saturday because I brought cookies on Saturday which, <laughs> you know, that, I had, that I had baked, but I'll have to send you some um, in, in gratitude uh, for today. David Nickturn, author of Awakening from the Daydream, Reimagining the Buddha's Wheel of Life and uh, of the forthcoming, what is it? Well, we won't talk about it too much, but it's creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. And it's coming, it'll be out uh, fall of 2019. David, I am so grateful that we had a chance to chat today. It's great to see you again. And uh, we didn't get into everything, but how could we in an hour? But we will hopefully revisit this at another time. I'd love to have you back on. Thank you, Francis. And good luck with your book. (laughs) thanks and your podcast as a as a as a kind of warm-up for it well i i appreciate the good wishes and i will uh allow them to nourish me when i try to get my seat not only in the cushion but in the chair in front of the laptop get your dream catcher out and swing it around sounds good to me bye sweetie all right see you